0: It's the much anticipated sequel to what many consider the greatest Spider Man movie of all time. So, does Across the Spider Verse live up to the hype and deliver, or does it run out of web fluid? Let's find out together as the byword starts now. Welcome, friends, to episode 154 of The Nerd by Word, the only podcast that doesn't still hold a candle for characters that peaked in the 90s and have been largely irrelevant since. Before we get to our review of Across the Spider Verse, the film that has captivated the attention and hearts of audiences around the globe, it's time to stop by the newsroom for some more. Dave, what's new, Pussycat?
1: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, it turns out that uh uh you know, the world of um, comic books journalism is just uh continuously uh taking hit after hit. Um you know, I, we, we joked on this show and on social media quite a bit about some of the flubs and, and weird articles that uh, CBR, formerly Comic Book Resources, has been publishing over the years. And I don't think that's going to get any better. Uh, now, I want to go on a record before I talk about this news story as saying that uh, I used to really, really love Comic Book Resources uh, before uh, it got bought up uh, by Valnet, uh, I think is the name of the company. Um, I think I thought it was always a really, really good, very strong uh, comic book news site. You had, you know, several industry professionals that were writing columns there. Uh, I recall, you know, for example, Tilting at Windmills. Uh, there was really, really good content there. The reviews were on point, the interviews were very strong. It was a, a, just a fun, fun. Uh, you know, comic book website for a very long time. Uh, And then it got bought up by by this uh, publisher, Valnet. And, you know, things shifted pretty dramatically. A lot of the um, industry insider uh, columns and and reviews started going to the wayside. A lot of the comic book content specifically started going to the wayside. Um, And instead we got more, you know, uh, pop culture stuff, a lot of listicle articles, very short news pieces, reactions, to news, which I don't really care much about, to be honest with you. Um, and so the site has been on a, on a downhill trajectory, regrettably, uh, although it is still one of the most trafficked comic book related websites on the net. Um, so that, that brings us to uh, last month uh, on Memorial Day, uh, when Valnet decided to lay off three quarters of its editorial team uh, of Uh, you know, cbr.com, Adam Switoreski, Stephen Girding, and Christopher Baggett were all told in one-on-one meetings, apparently, that they are being laid off. Um, There's now only uh, one individual so far, you know, left on the editorial team. Um, I think it's also very telling that, uh, you know, CBR has continued to kind of push things out as it is. Um, They are, Hiring. <laughs> uh, they have several jobs listed on Indeed.com, including new uh, news editor for TV and movies, TV and movies weekend news writer, and list writer. Um, and all the pos- positions are listed uh, as freelance. Uh, the editor position uh, is listed as part time, but requires to edit and write a minimum of ten news articles daily, uh, which doesn't really sound like a part time job oh my to me. God. But Whatever, Valnet, right? Um, And there's a lot of like, you know, whispering back and forth about why this exactly occurred with Valnet making a very odd statement um, saying that it was undergoing major structural changes related to turning the corner on both culture and performance, Um, which is interesting, the culture note. Uh, So obviously, uh, a lot of people have been trying to dig into what exactly the culture problem was at CBR. Um, and according to uh, a report from p- the popverse.com one source told the site that the culture problem to valnet is that they don't want people disagreeing with them in the least and they will not flex or bend on anything um, and a lot of the contributors of uh, of CBR have actually been uh talking rather positively about the three laid off editors it it, it appears from an outsider's perspective, looking in that once again, you know, Valnet is, is kind of chasing uh, the quick buck and the lowest common denominator. Uh, and and you can kind of see that in the more recent trajectory of the website. Um, and I think we're going to see them probably further stepping away from, you know, interviews and reviews and more towards these, you know, short news reaction snippets um, and, and less and less comic book uh, media and more pop culture focused. Um, so I, I think we're seeing... The continued decline here of what used to be comic book resources, which was, frankly, my my favorite comic book website for many many years. So that is a, a sad story and a sad state, I think, for comic book related journalism. Just for the fact that there isn't really anything that has very clearly and decisively stepped into this space, um, and created uh, you know a similar space you know, basically the online version of Wizard Magazine, you know, something that previews material, does serious interviews, you know, has columns, like this kind of stuff doesn't really exist in a large, clearly, you know, spread way across the net. And I think that's incredibly regrettable, Chris.
0: Yeah, I I, I didn't have the relationship with CBR, or I haven't, to, and, and even still, that you do. Um, the one that I, typically went to was comicbook.com and you can kind of read the tea leaves there as well. It's a very similar situation where um and there's still good material that I can get from from comicbook.com. Now they were bought out. I don't know if they were bought out, but I know that they're a subsidiary now of Viacom, like CBS, Paramount, all that jazz. So like you can you can see clear. You can see at the end of every two paragraph article, um That you know, it's it's pretty clear what the direction is there, and um, you know, so there's still stuff uh, good stuff for that I get from comicbook.com for uh, you know, for like our news stories as like a jumping on point, but then I typically have to do like further research myself because, well, as you said, it's it's two paragraphs, it's a super short article, it's clickbait. What are you going to do with that? Uh, But but, you know, even comicbook.com in recent years has kind of experienced a similar, I don't know, whatever evolution into what it is now. And you're getting headlines on comicbook.com about Taco Bell menu changes um, (laughs) and things of that nature. So I'm just like scratching my head. Um, There are a few like small name kind of I guess, indie kind of sites that I, that I enjoy. Uh, comics beat, uh, is one that, um, I re- like a little blurb for, um, it is, is pretty good, has columns and things of that nature. AIPT does great stuff with like, uh, creator interviews. They have X-Men Monday, um, for me in particular, where they interview creatives and editorial, uh, and stuff like that and then comics xf also does good stuff um and there so there are a couple of small things in there but you're very much correct in like like the, the culture has changed um in like in the not the advent but like with the internet and the blogosphere and it's just like there's so many of us that are terminally almost online that it's it's just kind of it's like the wild west of of the internet at this point, but there those are a few that I kind of go to for for kind of ingenuity and like real creative work um, in the medium now I'm not here to break down the economics of that. those folks are probably all freelance. Um, and, and, you know, doing that stuff in their spare time. Uh, I was riding with you when you said 10 articles, but I thought we were going to go per week and I was like, okay, that's okay. But per day that's, that's insanity.
1: Now you can tell that it is very much quantity over quality because how, how much, especially on a part-time basis, how many good strong articles can somebody write uh, in a single day? 10 is definitely not the number. Um, so as, as somebody who's worked, you know, for example, with student writers a lot on publications, uh, this kind of stuff takes time, you know, and and if you want quality, it takes time. So this is, you know, this is the fast food of, of, uh, of comics journalism at this point, I think. And then it's just it does not taste good.
0: Yeah. And I think like for me, just... If if your and if the the length and the breadth of your quote unquote news story can be summarized in one Twitter post, it's not a it's not an entire news story. I'm sorry. Like a great that that new toy that was released, it looks fantastic. Not a whole lot to write about. Just post a picture of it and a little blurb, and you're good.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, Chris. So. Uh... I, I don't know how much I can say about this because I've not seen the movie, but I'm very interested to see what your new story is here.
0: Okay. So as you mentioned at the time of recording, I have seen The Flash and you have, you have not. And we're also here to review Across the Spider-Verse. So, you know, keep our, our food separated. I'm not going to divulge too much into my reaction here. We're not re- here to review The Flash. However, it is important, I think, to discuss some of the troubling headlines that are accompanying the films released for a movie that's been mired in controversy since nearly its inception. Um, So I'm going to try to go in chronological order here, but hey, it's a flash story. So what the F does that even mean? Um, So a few days before the film was even released to theaters, scenes from the film's climax were leaked to social media and the response was less than stellar. I'm going to try to remain spoiler free here. Um, I will say that beloved versions of DC characters from the past were constructed using CGI uh, that made Rogue One's Governor Tarkin and Princess Leia look like a Renaissance-era masterpiece. I I suddenly was stricken with nostalgic pangs for my PlayStation 1 for some reason, looking at those graphics. Um, These frighteningly flawed renderings were ill-fated to be immediately destroyed in a clashing of universes, Uh, In talking with you, Dave, DC is certainly no stranger to this plot point, collision of universes, but fellow Marvel fans, we know them as incursions. Um, The poor CGI throughout the film as well has uh, has drawn widespread criticism to which director Andy Muschietti responded, quote, The idea, of course, is we are in the perspective of the Flash. Everything is distorted in terms of lights and textures. We enter this water world, which is basically being in Barry's POV. It was part of the design, so if it looks a little weird to you, that was intended, end quote. Hit number two. According to MovieWeb, the film opened at just $24.5 million, about $2 million behind Black Adam, which was widely regarded as a box office bomb. Uh, This obviously does not bode well as a send-off to this initial interpretation of the DCEU. Uh, And then finally, eagle-eyed moviegoers spotted an egregious omission from the special thanks portion of the credits as legendary comic book writer Mark Wade was left out of the section. Wade, even as an outsider I know, is widely regarded to be the definitive flash writer, albeit for the character of Wally West in place of Barry Allen, but do we really believe this is Barry Allen in name anyways as as Wade worked on the book from 1992 to 2000 and briefly again in 2007 fellow legendary scribe Gail Simone posted the following statement on social media quote okay I love the flash movie but is it really even possible that Mark Wade was not credited or is not credited for being the most influential flash writer in the modern era I don't know if that's a rumor or a true fact, but if it's true, that is a massive error. Mark's work is all over that movie. Lots of us are Flash fans to this day because of his work on DC's Speedsters. This is just baffling. End quote. Um, and I did some research and saw actual photos from uh, the end credits, and Mark Wade's name is not there, uh, according to what I saw. Dave, it's almost intentional at this point. Are we being punked?
1: You know what? Um, so, as you said, I've not seen the movie. Um, it is It is on my um, to-do list, obviously. I'm going to be checking it out. Uh, positive or negative reaction, be darned. Um, some terrain wrecks you just have to see for yourself, I guess. Um, so I'm going to be watching it here soon. However, um, I, I, I do want to... I do want to go ahead and put like a spoiler alert in effect because I did see uh, online, I ran straight into it, the much, uh, you know, sort of Ballyhooed cameo scene. And I do want to take a moment to talk about that in particular just because, as you said, uh, you know, it is very reminiscent of a PlayStation 1, you know, or PS2 cutscene. However, um, there is something deeply uncomfortable about this one. Um, And that is uh, specifically because, and again, spoiler alert here, um because of the chris reeve cameo um as as superman uh first of all i think they could have used a cardboard cutout and it would have looked better um because it looks almost like a cardboard cutout there's like no expressiveness on the face he doesn't really move he like has this very slight uh, head movement at one point and then the camera sort of zooms around him and that's it um, and then it looks, based on, on the footage I saw online, like immediately after they show him standing there or, you know, a very, very horrible CGI version of him, um, immediately like his planet gets destroyed. So we, we took one of the most beloved DC Comics actors who has, you know, sadly passed away, resurrect him for this movie only to immediately drop a planet on him and kill him. And I just think there's something really in just absolutely bad taste here. <laughs> like, like this feels so out of... I don't know, man. Maybe in the context of the movie, it's better. I don't know. But just seeing the clip, it, it made me feel really, really icky just to see that. And I wished, as much as I am nostalgic for, for Chris Reeves' performance uh, as Superman, um, I wish they would have left well enough alone there. Because that... There was absolutely... It doesn't seem to me, at least, like there was any care put into that particular special effect. It, it and it doesn't seem particularly special. And and to then take you know the effort of trying to quote unquote resurrect this this actor for this role, and then immediately like oh and by the way we just smashed him and he's dead, um, is it, just a very very weird choice um, to make. So I did not I did not find that to be in good taste in any way shape or form. I also have to laugh. Uh, a little bit about the, uh, the hoopla about Jay Garrick. Uh, I don't know if, if you caught on to any of that. I did, um, I did. So so the, the, the long and short of it is that there's a brief shot of a young Jay Garrick in the movie uh, as part of these cameos. The, the problem is that young Jay Garrick here looks strangely like actor Teddy Sears. Now, for those of you that might remember the earlier seasons of The Flash, I think this might've been season two or three, Teddy Sears actually appeared as what was supposed to be Jay Garrick, only to, turns out it wasn't actually really Jay Garrick, it was actually uh the supervillain Zoom posing as Jay Garrick. And, a re- and 90s Flash actor John Wesley Shipp was eventually introduced as the real Jay Garrick. Now, so first of all, you know, you have a whole bunch of fans wondering why in the world they're using Teddy Sears as Jay Garrick when he played not Jay Garrick, very specifically, in Uh, in in, in the Flash TV show. But then the plot thickened when Teddy Sears was interviewed and he said, listen, I got a newborn at home right now. I know I'm a little sleep deprived, but I don't remember (laughs) doing anything for this movie and so now, and so now the rumors are swirling that they c g him and weren't really aware of the fact that he wasn't really playing Jake Garrick? There's some rumors going around that they actually tried to make it John Wesley ship at d h, but it doesn't really look like John Wesley ship like this whole cameo scene is just a special effects poop show um where yeah. You can't even quite tell what they were trying to do with it. Apparently this one, two minute clip that I saw online has probably done more to, to make me crestfallen about this movie than anything else. Um, you know, I'm, I am very much somebody who will arise to the nostalgia bait, you know, and I will say that I, a part of me is very excited to see Michael Keaton in the role of Batman again, even though he is, you know, an old guy and that's not even my favorite version of Batman necessarily. Um, but there is a certain amount of nostalgia to that, uh, especially since Batman the Animated Series really, in a lot of ways, grew out of Batman 89, you know? And so I, I have I have nostalgia for this. And I will freely admit there was a part of me that's excited for this. But I don't know what they were going for w- with this particular scene. It's it's icky. It's, it's icky in a lot of ways, Chris. Dude, you buried the lead
0: because you saw it. <clears throat> Speaking of 90s DC movies, we got something that should have been momentous and eventful and unifying as a fandom. We got Nicolas Cage, Superman, but it was such a crap rendering. Yeah.
1: That, another another like, PlayStation what, two scene. It doesn't,
0: yeah. it doesn't mean anything like that could have been so cool. And, oh, it's just, so, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to have to cut my, I'm going to have to cut myself off because, I have so much to react to to this movie that I need to save for possibly our next episode when you see the movie.
1: Okay, well, I will say this, and I think it needs to be said. The only good thing about that whole scene was that Nicolas Cage Superman was fighting a giant spider. That was it was it,
0: it was so awesome. It just looked like crap.
1: Yeah, it was it was the most clever thing considering the whole you know Kevin Smith story about John Peters and everything like like it was it was about as perfect as you can get if they would have just gotten the effect right and and you know I I'm um, I'm a fan of the director I mean he, he this is the guy who directed it right I mean he, there's there's a lot of talent behind this individual but I don't think. <sighs> From what I've seen from trailer shots and and a little bit of leaked footage that popped up online here and there, it looks like the movie is well directed. It's it almost feels like he had all these epic shots in mind and then the special effects never came through. And I don't know if this has to do with crunch. Um you know, there's always a lot of special effects crunch on these big blockbuster movies and they don't get the the special effects guys don't get the time they need to finish it or if there was like they got cut off of, on money because of the transition and you know with WB and everything. I don't know what happened there but it feels like from the director perspective like he was really trying and then the the effects just never came through and to come out and say well it's supposed to look weird dude you don't make the choice to make Chris Reeves look weird and unrealistic when you're trying to go for a nostalgia um, fueled you know a, a, adrenaline shot right it, you want him to look as real and realistic as possible so people buy that he's actually there and nobody bought that scene nobody
0: it's just a it's just a troubling trend that we have with DC films and I hope that I hope that it dies with this first iteration of the DCEU. It's like it's almost DC's calling card is crappy CGI. And and I hope that we can evolve into something else in this new vision of the universe. I'm just uh I like I said I don't want to get too deep into it.
1: Well, I will. I will also say this, and you know, and I'm a much bigger DC fan than a Marvel fan. But you know what? Anybody else that that starts uh, from the DC side saying, you know, Marvel has crappy CGI because of She Hulk or something, you know, dude, dude come at me, okay? She Hulk looked actually like she was there. Let's talk about She Hulk versus Chris Reeves for a second. That's absolutely disgusting. Anyways.
0: <laughs> yeah. More on that possibly next episode if, if we can get Dave to, to watch this movie. Uh, although, I don't know, uh, m- maybe it's just the DC fandom because why would you want to
1: at this point? Um, I mean, you finally got me watching Lower Decks. That's what I've been doing. So did you? Are you kidding me? You did? I'm um, six, oh, yes. six episodes in the first oh, season right now.
0: God, yes.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. Mm. All right. I need to contain myself. Um, so, that wraps up Nerd News. Uh, hit us with your reactions to the Flash. We're going to probably review it here coming up very soon um, at Nerd By Word Twitter and Instagram. When we come back from our first break, we are reviewing across the Spider Verse. <music> Welcome back to the main segment. The reason we are gathered here today, dearly beloved, we are here to review across the Spider Verse in today's By Word. Okay, now, this is going to be an atypical movie review, okay, because I saw this movie twice, and I had nary a dislike. So we're going to talk about the things that we like, and Dave has a couple of nitpicks And I tried, I desperately tried to come up with nitpicks, but we'll get there in a moment. So I have no dislikes for this film Uh, as it stands right now. Maybe something will come up, but I couldn't think of anything. So we're just going to launch right into the likes. Dave, what is your first like of Across the Spider-Verse?
1: Well, it's no secret here that obviously this is a Miles Morales movie, and well, it should be, um, and the, the character is fantastic, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about um, Gwen in this movie, because the movie opens with Gwen, uh, with Gwen in sort of an extended opening sequence before we ever get to Miles, and that opening sequence runs for about, about 15 minutes or something, it, it goes for quite a while, and so... Gwen was really the point that had to to sort of captivate us into wanting to watch this movie. You know, I mean if you if you're going to put something out there and 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 that's your opening, that's your hook, right? That's what's going to draw people in. And what drew people in here in this movie at the beginning was was Gwen. And I have to say that entire opening sequence was absolutely fantastic. The the drumming, the the animation um her recap of her life and the kind of uh, the, the emotional resonance of that, her the conflict with her father. there's a lot of moving parts here that I found really, really interesting and it almost felt like the first fifteen minutes of this movie were sort of a pitch for a for a, a Spider Woman solo movie starring Gwen Stacy. like it was it was that strong and that good to the point where I could have probably just kept watching that as as a solo movie and I would have been perfectly content as well. I think that's one of the interesting things we get out of the Spider-Verse movie in some ways is that there are some characters that you almost feel like would lend themselves naturally to having a solo outing and to me Gwen absolutely does that. I found her her arc in this movie to be less that of a supporting character and more like a co-lead, I think. It's almost like her and Miles were co-leads. You know um, what? You and- know
0: what? It's almost like what Ant-Man and the Wasp should have been
1: yes you're exactly right and so you get a lot of arc for miles in this movie obviously since he's sort of the advertised front and center protagonist but but gwen goes through a really extensive and interesting arc as well in this movie um and i and i saw i almost feel like she's co-lead at this point and and i really really liked it i thought that was a very very smart choice because her character i think was a real interesting standout from the first one anyways um and so kind of reducing the Peter B. Parker role in this one and leaning more into the Gwen of it, I think, was incredibly smart. She's just a v- very fascinating character. Um, and I think in some ways more interesting than the comic book version. Now, don't get me wrong. I like I like comic Spider-Gwen, um, and I have read a, a fair amount of her comics, especially the, the first couple of runs. But I think here there's a very different resonance with the character that really, really works. Um, So I think Gwen really, really shines in this movie as a character.
0: And you know what? I, I, I think for me, it really just boils down to something really simple. I think I think Haley Seinfeld is a superstar. I, I, I just can't speak enough to how. How magnetic she is as a star presence, even as a voice actress. Um. You know, we've talked about this time and again when we when we did Hawkeye. I mean, she's had audiences captivated since she was a child. Uh Oh, you know, True True Grid was incredible. Oh yeah. my god! Like, uh, uh, I think she was thirteen at the time. Just she, magnificent,
1: uh, uh, magnificent. And ca- carried that movie. I mean, no, no, no yeah. rip on Jeff Bridges. Or in anything, a, in, a, movie, in a movie, in a movie
0: with Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon, she carried that movie.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: And. um <clears throat> Listen, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion. There's, there's a lot of discussion taking place, particularly with Gwen coming out of this movie, the trans allegory, the subtext versus the text arguments, um, you know, from some of the, the worst people imaginable online of, um, of, of transphobic, homophobic, you know, commentary or what, what have you, um, and you know, as two cisgendered straight white men, I'd feel, Dave. I don't know if if I can speak for you, but it's not our place to make that judgment.
1: I would, I will agree, I will totally agree with that. And if if you don't, if you don't mind me saying this for a second, and I've said this online before, I just think it's something that needs to be said. Um, as somebody who's who's written and published a few stories, um, in my time. I think it's something that a lot of people don't understand. Um, fiction is not uh, is not one way communication, right? It's not an author putting putting down something and then the consumer consumes and that's yes. it, right? It's not it's not it's not a stake, okay? Fiction uh, storytelling is is a two way street, right? In that, on the one hand, you have uh, the author telling a story and and with some intent behind it, sure. Um, but on the other hand, you have then how the audience relates to that story. Um, and every audience member relates to uh, a movie or, or a novel or whatever really fiction in, in a unique way uh, based on their own life experiences, right? So they, they react and, and interpret the fiction that they consume through the prism of their own life experiences, right? So in the particular case of Gwen Stacy... Uh, In this movie, when I watch this movie, do I relate to this uh, character uh, on on a level of, oh, I identify with, uh, you know, her transness, for example? Well, absolutely not, because that is not the prism through which I, as a a a cracker straight guy, uh, will 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 view (laughs) this character. Say that
0: word, yeah.
1: Um, However. Uh, did I relate to the character in my own way? Certainly. I mean, you know, there there is something about being a teenager and having parental conflict and trying to establish yourself as as your own person and your own individual, Um, and at the same time not wanting to you know disappoint or let your parents down if you have some kind of strong or, or, or good relationship with them that I can that I can relate to. I think that is pretty universal. However, that is the prism through which I. Um, React to this character and through which I interpret the character. Um, and I think saying that another person's reaction to the character or interpretation of the character is invalid um, is incredibly tone deaf to how fiction works fiction is interpretive. I mean, how often do you have uh, you know, authors coming out and saying something about a particular character that they wrote, or um, a particular story that they wrote, and the audience goes, uh, do what? That's not what we felt at all. I think there's a lot to be said for, um, for example, Here's, I think, a really good example is, is you know, the whole ongoing J.K. Rowling uh, issue, right? The whole controversy surrounding some of her statement uh, towards uh, trans people, right? And then you look at the books, and there is some very questionable stuff in there. But then there is also an ongoing subplot across several books uh, regarding um, house elves and the enslavement of house elves and how Hermione, who is held up as one of the heroes of the story, is very actively trying to end the practice of enslaving house elves, right? And and this is held up as a good thing. This is held up as, you know, she is a hero and she is in the moral right. And so from an audience perspective, um, oftentimes because of that subplot, uh, there is, you know, Harry, Harry Potter stories are, you know, pro minority rights, uh, not suppressing people, not, you know, enslaving people, not, you know, everybody's equal. Right. And so then JK Rowling coming out and saying some of the things she has about trans made people feel uncomfortable exactly because of that, because the audience interpretation went one way when perhaps the authorial intent went another way. Um, so again, I think what we all need to realize is that everybody views fiction through their own lens, and that doesn't mean that they are quote-unquote wrong. It is their own lens and their own life experiences that color how they perceive a character or a story in fiction, period.
0: Yeah, and, and I sent this to you in while we were discussing it privately, but I always go back to, like, what what more could we say about Mark Hamill? I mean, my God. Um, but... You know, he was asking a question uh, or excuse me, answering a question about the possibility of Luke Skywalker being gay. And I'm going to quote here. He said, quote, fans will say, I'm getting bullied at school. I'm afraid to come out because my parents are religious and they'll hate me. It just breaks your heart. Uh, And they would say to me, could Luke be gay? And I might get emotional reading this. Um, And I would say it's meant to be interpreted by you. If you think he's gay, of course he's gay. You know, and I kind of had a different viewing experience, you know, as a father to um, to queer children, to a transgendered child. Um, and kind of seeing that journey for Gwen. Um, it was just a really beautiful experience. Um, and almost like a cautionary tale for me as a parent of... As I have, you know, I have a wide spectrum when it comes to age range of children. Um, So I have some who are already teenagers. I have some who are coming into becoming teenagers. And I have some who are still elementary age. And so it's just almost like um, almost just like a quick reminder of like, how can I support my kids the most? And I truly believe um that was just like a really emotional impactful story between herself and her father. And like, it was truly heartbreaking when he attempted to arrest her broke my, broke my heart. Um, And I think, God, there's so, there's so much about that because her entire world, her universe. um, And she said, uh, Haley Steinfeld has said this in subsequent interviews, just like, it was the idea behind her universe is a mood ring. And I noticed it, especially on the second viewing, of her hair color changing, and the walls are bleeding or crying, in even uh, you know, depending upon your interpretation. Um, and then just being willing to just—and I'm gonna get this on my on my first like—but it was just an emotional roller coaster for me. Uh, spending time in Gwen's universe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into that then, Chris. What was your like of the movie?
0: This is this is a masterpiece. This is a visual masterpiece. And this is... Um, I have, you know, so many people, um, just general audience members have this anti-animation bias. Like, everything has to be in live action. Like, we are already... Already seeing, oh, we need a live action Miles Morales. And I don't know that we do... I don't know that we need a live-action Miles Morales. I think it would feel cheap. I think it'll feel like the Dollar General version of the character. Like it, I think it. I think it cheapens what we've we've already been gifted this. And what I love about it is, I, I titled it "The Ambition of the Animation." Like they just went for it. They took a risk. Like we we already talked about briefly Gwen's universe and the mood ring nature of it and the colors blending and bleeding together. We haven't even got to the star of the show that has been a skyrocketing superstar out of this. We haven't gotten to, to Hobie Brown, Spider Punk. That animation alone is just a visual feast. It's almost like they truly embrace well first and foremost they truly embrace that like punk aesthetic the punk rock aesthetic uh you know particularly of uh of like the uh, UK punk rock and then you how do you tie that into animation where it's like it's almost like magazine cutouts and his animation is like jittery and it goes from black and white to full color it's just it's just mesmerizing the things that they're able to do. The ambition of this animation is truly mesmerizing. For God's sake, we had Lego Spider-Man. Like, come on. Like, like, Hey, and, hey, hey, he's one of our best. He's one of Yes. And that Lego Spider-Man, Lego Spider-Man is one of the most trusted people in this spider society or whatever moniker we're giving them. Like, it was just so fun to sit back in a theater chair and just bask in the glory of create as a creator, as a creative person, to just see creators cook. Like, it's almost like I'm in the kitchen with like Gordon Ramsay or Wolfgang Puck or like one of the industry giants. Um, or You know like i'm i I feel like anthony bourdain god rest him like was one of those people as a culture and as a food nerd i just like i was enraptured in every episode when he would travel the world and all these places i'm dying to go to and be in the kitchen with some of these people in their own homes and that's how i felt watching this film
1: see that's fascinating um the animation in this movie is a whole nother level. I don't think we can fault anything animation style in this movie in any way, shape, or form. It is one of the most kinetic animation styles I think I've ever seen. It is one of the most interesting because it's so experimental because they really leaned into the idea of a multiverse, that every universe is truly unique visually, that uh, they were able to do some incredible stuff. I, I think that opening sequence with Gwen already perfectly... Uh, set the tone with that, like Leonardo da Vinci style Mm -hmm. um, vulture. Oh,
0: Oh my God. When I saw Renaissance da Vinci style vulture, I was just like, oh, we're going there in the first 10 minutes of the film. Oh, we're doing this. Buckle up.
1: Yeah, it was, it was absolutely incredible. Like, you know, and I think that's something I regrettably that the comic books, when they play with multiverses has never really done. Which is to give each universe a really distinct art style, and really just kind of like bounce around the art a little bit, and, and everything looks, you know, pretty um, homogenous. I guess is the best way to put it. You know, if you put a bunch of Spider-Man, for example, in the Spider-Verse in the original Spider-Verse comic book story next to each other, they, artistically they're pretty much all the same. There's some variations in the costume. The only but the only
0: th- ones the only ones where you get that kind of variation, believe it or not, is Spider-Ham. Where they're just like, what Spider-Ham. if we made? What if we made Meows Morales? What if we made him a cat? Like, that's the where we get they they get the most adventurous. The uh, and and the 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 frustrating part with it for, for so many for so much of Spider Verse comics is how can we tell this story from Peter Parker's perspective a thousand different times? I'm like, come on.
1: The th- the thing is ultimately that. It it should not be that animation is showing up comic books when it comes mm-hmm. to art. Like they yes. they they should lean into these kinds of ideas in the comic books to begin with, right? Um, but yeah, this is this, this animation and and just the variations in animation from universe to universe and the way they play with color. Uh, this this movie is a work of art.
0: All right, so we behind the curtain, we are recording this on Father's Day, and saps like saps like you and I Dave are going to fall for this bait every single time.
1: Every single time. Yeah, I mean this is a this is a movie that is ostensibly about family in a pretty much every way shape or form. Every character that really matters to the plot of this movie has something going on with their family, right? You know, Miles doesn't want to disappoint his parents and then is ultimately on a mission to try to save his father. Um, Gwen and her relationship with her father. we've spoken you know about quite a bit. Uh, Peter B, B. Parker now is a father himself and, and that kind of colors his whole experience in this movie. Even, even Miguel who is not the villain, but I would argue with the antagonist of this movie. Yes. Um, even Miguel, his entire reason for being who he is in this movie is because he lost a family right so th- this is very much a movie that is c- clearly thematically anchored across the board for all major characters in the notion of, of what it means to be family and and what we do for the people that we love and i think that is one of the the rarest things these days particularly in superhero movies is that there is a a a strong through line that hits all the major characters in some way that's just good thematic writing um and, and I love, love, love that here. I, I'm a family kind of guy anyways. I love stories that focus on the notion of family and what it means to be a family and what we owe each other as, as family. Those sorts of things, you know, resonate with me. And so having this as a through line, this movie, I thought was incredibly smart and worked incredibly well, Chris.
0: And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a DLC on that, an expansion pack to your like, if you will. I love the cultural authenticity of this film. Um and it's something that I think the ms Marvel disney plus series uh just absolutely nailed um while while I may be a honky <laughs> in every respect of the term um i i was i blessed and fortunate to have a very diverse upbringing I was raised by my my stepfather who I consider to be my father as a uh, who is a black man um i you know studied the spanish language and latine culture and so i've spent time um you know with large parts of the latine community with the black community um and it's not again not my place to comment on that because that's not my culture not my experience but seeing people from those backgrounds echo sentiments of this is an accurate representation. Uh, the one meme that I sent you, Dave, and even though we are white, it would get the same response in our household. The reason that I know Gwen Stacy is a white girl from a white household is she put her shoes on someone else's bed.
1: <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, as, as somebody who grew up in Germany, I can tell you that crap, that crap would not have flown in, in our house either. She like. would have
0: flown out the window. <laughs> right My grandma.
1: My grandmother would not have appreciated that in any way, shape or form. That would have, there would have been some serious words, maybe a cooking spoon flying through the through the mm-hmm. house. I mean, it's just not not a pretty picture.
0: and you know something that you know, growing up um, immersed in black culture as I was, the first thing that resonated with me. Um, and I would be mortified. I still have to this day, don't use parents' first names, but when she calls the parents, Miles's parents by their first name, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, my dad would flip. Oh, <laughs> um, and it's, it's just so, I feel it. And, you know, and having traveled to New York frequently, like it feels like an accurate representation of Brooklyn in New York as well. Um, and that's just a beautiful kind of cultural snapshot, if you will.
1: Yeah, somebody did their homework is what we're saying here, right? And and it's very, very clear that they did. All right, Chris, so what is your next like for this movie? All
0: right, so um, I'm going to credit our dear friend Ash from X of Words, but he made this observation in uh, in a group chat that I was in. Um, the metatextual messaging of this film, the first one uh, that I'm going to attribute to him is like a, a crippling kind of storyline being the great arch nemesis, like the real villain of this movie is Spider-Man has to go through these canon events and that being, uh, and we could do nothing to interrupt that as being like the big bad of this movie is just so meta contextual, just bliss. And then furthermore on the meta context of this film and the, the directors and everybody behind the scenes like immediately admitted this. Is like the whole conversation around Miles being an anomaly, an abomination, like he does not deserve to wear the mask and all this stuff. That was, from the director's perspective, you know, sorry for Miguel for having to envision that. And a lot of people are ca- casting shots, rightfully so, at Miguel for being kind of the voice of that. Um, But it was a very intentional message that the directors, the producers and everyone involved made that, yes, Miles belongs here. And you can cast aspersions, you can do whatever you want to do, but Miles belongs here. And that is a very intentional message thematically throughout this film was just a really beautiful thing to see brought into into this movie.
1: I'll agree with that. I'll also say that to me, there is definitely something here about um, almost a rebuke of uh what's going on with with comic books generally speaking with some of these characters you know uh, and i think we're going to see that much more clearly if this if the you know the rest of the story kind of progresses the way it it feels like it will you know this notion of canon events this notion of that these things have to happen you have to have a story a certain way or people will not you know um it will not resonate with them i i think they're going to very very strongly and very clearly upend that in the third movie, and and to me that is very much a rebuke of of business as usual as is happening in in the comic books right now. Um, I I think that ultimately it comes down to uh, be braver, be bolder, be be experimental, which is what this movie oftentimes is with its animation in particular. And I don't and I think I don't want to open up the can of worms of talking about current Amazing Spider Man because you and I. Uh, Part ways there pretty strongly, uh, but I think we can we can both agree at the very least that evolving characters and moving in a direction and and changing things up and experimenting with the storytelling rather than stagnating is something that this movie firmly supports, um, and it's very clear in how the story is written.
0: And I think the one thing that you and I can definitely agree on is that per- Peter Parker and his trajectory in the comics is held captive. By Marvel editorial. Period. Full stop. So any enjoyment that I have out of current Amazing Spider-Man, and, you know, for Marvel as a whole, honestly, is in spite of editorial and the constraints that they try to place on their character. It's almost like you know the old X-Men animated series where they put like the the mute the collars on it that like, um. Oh, what do they call it they like mute their mutant powers so they can't like use them or whatever that's how i feel marvel editorial is like handcuffing handicapping um you know their characters and peter parker is look no look no further for a greater instance of that so anything that i enjoy about peter parker's story and what what the current title is doing is in spite of that
1: yeah. And I almost feel like uh, the most heated, most interesting episode we could ever record would be a deep dive into the current run on Amazing Spider Man. <laughs> um, well, but, and that's, uh, and
0: that's fu- it's funny you say that because you really made me think of it earlier when you were talking about what we draw from fiction. I have a different interpretation of the current that's exactly right taking place because of the life experiences that I've lived of, you know, we have this pie in the sky. The Ms. Marvel death, notwithstanding, because that's an editorial overreach that's bullshit forevermore. Um, but the kind of like star-crossed lovers vibe that they have between Mary Jane and Peter, like sometimes your soulmate doesn't work out. And I've lived that experience. And it's heartbreaking, it's heartrending. And so I get what they're going for from that. Now, is that the intended effect? By the writer? I don't know. But I do know that Marvel editorial C.B. Cebulski said that that's not relatable to have Peter Parker be a married person or be in a long-term committed relationship. So maybe it's just a lucky byproduct of what's happening that I can relate to that story. Um... But yeah, so anything that I enjoy out of that is in spite of Marvel editorial and the handcuffs that it places on some of the characters that I've loved since I was six years old. Um, One thing I did want to say is, as you mentioned this, and again, I I promise I do not want to spoil this movie or anything, but you were talking about like the influence of canon events and how we should be daring creators to to be more ambitious and be more creative when it comes to these canon events. That was probably my biggest gripe with the flash film is we talk about the advent of AI imaging. Some of that script felt like they dumped it into chat GPT. Like there was no emotion behind it. Like it was like color by numbers And that was probably my greatest frustration. Like, I can get over bad CGI. For God's sake, I've seen bad CGI's in a DC movie since I can remember. But the more disappointing thing is, like, nothing really packed a punch. And that's what I'm, you know, worried about when we continue to make comic book movies. Yes, it's great that as comic book nerds, like, I never would have dreamed to be the state we're in. But what i love about these spider-verse films is that they're willing to kind of evolve and adapt and i wish i wish so many much more comic book movies would do the same
1: yeah uh i i, I agree with that i think you know i i think if you look at something like um some something like Superman Lost, for example, which I'm going to talk about probably next week as my nerd commendation. God, I'm um, dying
0: to read that. How have I not
1: read that? Yeah. Text? yeah so the notion in that is basically that Superman gets like sucked in a black hole and then he spends like twenty years trying to make his way back home to Lois Lane and you get in the story sort of like in flashbacks after he returns and he's kind of suffering through like the stresses of being gone that long and then trying to return to his normal life because for him it's been twenty years, and for her, it's been like two hours or something um and so that is some bold storytelling, right? And it's not even in the regular. Um, in the regular uh, comic books, right? It's a it's a standalone miniseries, right? And that 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 is, and that is problematic in its own way, um, because some a story like that can absolutely work, um, in, in the in the regular comic books. Fe- That's simple storytelling. Same. I, you know? I felt the same way with Spider Man Life
0: Story. Like, like bleep your sliding timescale. What if he aged like a real human being? That was fascinating.
1: That's exactly right, yeah.
0: Is that right, Ollie? (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Let's hit up your final like uh, for Across the Spider-Verse. My
1: final like is very... My final like is very simply that this movie loves Spider-Man. You know? Uh, I think that really comes across in every single scene and every single version of Spider-Man that they put on the screen. I mean, we had Peter parked car for crying out loud, right? There's so (laughs) there's there is such a deep love of the lore of Spider-Man, all the little obscure little things that have popped up in the comic books over the years. There is a love put into redesigning Spider-Man India, for example. Um, there is just so much love uh for the character and for the worlds that writers in the comic books have created. Um and, and I think that love bleeds through in every single uh in every single major scene. And so to me. Uh, that is the real strength of the movie. Besides the incredible animation, it's just the pure love of Spider Man that <laughs> is put on screen.
0: Yeah, I could I couldn't agree more. Like I, I saw this with my son, who's been um, that's one of our bonding experiences. Um, is that we love Spider Man? Uh, we regularly watch watch Spider Man movies. You know, as you know, when he was growing up, and then he was he was shaking with excitement. Um, As we were like walking into the theater Um, and just being able to share that experience with him. That was a canon event for me, if you will. Um, And it's just. I'm going to go back to like the ambition and the creative notion, because like. It's a freaking car. (laughs) It's like the the spider buggy or or the spider car what have you is like one of the like the inside jokes of like being one of the dumbest things to ever happen to amazing Spider-Man comics. And they turned that into a persona. We got Spider-Rex. We got a freaking cowboy Spider-Man. And then, you know, like being able to evolve past just one guy in every multiverse. I think that was finally like, yeah, you can make him a car. You can make him a cowboy. You can make him everything. But what if it's just a different person? Like it doesn't have to be Peter every bleep in time. That's finally finally.
1: Yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, you know, I wonder what the canon event of Peter Park car was. Did he did he lose his <laughs> Uncle Bentley? I mean, like <laughs>
0: <laughs> He got a ticket.
1: <laughs> I I think there's also, you know, I think the canon event thing really we're going to see reevaluated um very quickly in um in in the third movie i think that there that this is a gross oversimplification you know in a lot of ways um it, yeah I, I i could get into that but i think i think we're gonna probably maybe do an episode like right before the next one comes out kind of speculating or something that might be interesting yeah what are yes that, placing I our think there's a yep yeah i think there's a lot of really interesting groundwork laid here and i don't think that this is going to go the way people think <laughs> I, I i think there's some curveballs coming at us anyways what is your final
0: like of the movie chris dude everything about the new crew is captivating to me um i already loved the idea of spider-man india and i'm gonna butcher the pronunciation but pavitra Prabhakar. like south asian um south asia as a whole like geographically culturally religiously linguistically has been a fascination of mine um Particularly in recent years, you know, with my falling in love with with uh, Kamala Khan. And so seeing them kind of evolve that suit, everything about that character was incredible. I mean, I will never look at Chai the same way again. Um, And also, here's an Easter egg that I didn't catch on. He did, Miles did the exact same thing with ATM. The machine is redundant, as is chai tea. Like that's that's meta, man. That's huge. Um, And then I've already like professed my love for Hobie Brown. Like the fan art that's come out of this movie is just captivating and is just so fun. That's when you know you have a good movie is when the World Wide Web, pun fully intended, is just. Just bursting at the seams with fan art and imaginative, like, headcanon stuff. It's just so fun. Um, but yeah, this whole new crew.
1: It's like I said at the beginning with Gwen. It almost feels like she could have her own movie very easily. I think a lot of the, a lot of the characters introduced in this could very easily carry their own movie. And that's when you have a strong story, right? When every character is interesting enough to go off and have their own adventures, then you're doing something right.
0: I mean, hate the AM, hate the PM. I hate consistency. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. And then, you know, after the first viewing, I was just like, who is this Miguel O'Hara? Who is this a-hole? Like, here's the thing that bothered me after the first viewing, but now after the second viewing, I'm kind of fascinated. Maybe we'll get to your nitpicks here in a little bit. Um... Well, I'm, excuse me, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this in your nitpicks. The fascinating thing to me is Miguel is so obsessed with Miles being an anomaly, an aberration, or what have you, and he's going to screw up the multiverse and the sanctity of this. Homeboy went to another universe. How many universes did he destroy, not just with disrupting one canon event, but living with a family that wasn't really his day after day after day. That's what I'm excited to watch that unfold and unpack that in the next film. The hypocrisy of one Miguel O'Hara pissed me off at first, but then at the second viewing, I was just like, that's actually fascinating. It's like him gatekeeping and like everybody is just like, Under his servitude, like at the not under his servitude, but like under his command. Like everybody just like Miguel says jump and they say how high, even if they want to rib him like Peter B does, even as good a friend as Gwen wants to be, she's still having to listen to Miguel. Like that's fascinating to me, and I can't wait to unpack that. And masterfully done by Oscar Isaac. I mean, like, what guy what can't that guy do? My God. Um, and And somebody somebody said, put his his buddy Pedro Pascal, like the Internet's daddy in this movie. Like, yep. Count me in. Count me in. I'm in. So I'm fascinated by this new crew. And Miguel frustrated me at first. But now I'm fascinated by like this a-hole. And I want an empanada. I don't want an empanada (laughs) now.
1: And I, and I have to say that uh, there are some fans of Spider Man twenty ninety nine which I never read that deeply that were not that happy with this portrayal of Miguel. Um, so I'm I'm interested to see how they how they come full circle because again I don't think he's a villain here. He's an antagonist, but I don't think he's a villain. And I think we're going to we're going to further illuminate that character in the next one.
0: Okay, new nerd by word drinking game. Every time Dave rants about Ben Riley, take a drink. We might be passed on very soon.
1: This <laughs> is not a this is not a rant. Come on, man. So you, you as you by said. The you way, could by not the find- way, by the by
0: the way, by the way, we're in Dave's nitpicks, if you hadn't guessed.
1: Yeah, so obviously Chris says he can't find any nitpicks and this is a perfect movie. And while I agree that it is a near perfect movie, um I'm a very nitpicky guy. Um as uh, as Chris has said many times, uh, I grade a lot harder than him when it comes to school assignments as well. So, they, come to, uh, they come
0: to my class crying. No, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. It w- it, I would not be surprised. <laughs> um, so, so a few things. Uh, first of all, Uh, My first nitpick does focus on Ben Reilly, although I don't think it's nearly what you think it's going to be here. Um, I thought it was visually very cool how they showed him. Um, Mm -hmm. It definitely felt sort of like a 90s comic book. I don't think the choice of, of using him as the poster child for 90s angst in comics was necessarily the right step. And the reason for that is that that's not what he represented in the comics at the time when he was introduced. I mean, was there a little bit like, oh, I'm a clone, I'm, I'm angsty kind of thing? It was a little bit of that. But at the time uh, of the Clone Saga and the Spider-Man comic books, it was Peter Parker who was the angsty one, right? Peter Parker was going through it. Um, and Peter Parker had been so traumatized, he was running around calling himself just the spider. He's not no longer Peter Parker. He's just the spider. He's giving up being Peter Parker and all this crap. And so... Ben was actually a return to the light-hearted, quippy Spider-Man that had not been seen in Marvel Comics for quite a while at that point. Um, So so it seems almost like an inversion of what Ben was in the comic books. Now, if they wanted to do 90s Edge, I thought it would have been much cooler to use Kane because although Kane as a character was redeemed in his own Scarlet Spider... Oh, my God, I love Kane. Yeah, but he was redeemed in his own Scarlet Spider run later on. If you're looking at the actual 90s and the Clone Saga, this was the 90s angst. Kane was the 90s edge. Not Ben. Ben was, was more classic Peter Parker than Peter Parker was even at the time. And so that felt like an odd choice for me. And I, it's not like that far out of the left field to have Kane even included in the movie. The only scene where I thought that the Ben's shtick worked perfectly is when he goes into the alley at the end of the movie and he's narrating because that felt exactly mm-hmm. like 90s yep. comic book caption box narration, right? But the rest of it, I felt like Kane would have been a much better choice to represent the super angsty 90s. I mean, this is the failed clone that's scarred, and he's constantly. I hate everybody because they're that all may have been too deep and... a cut, though. <laughs> I don't. I don't know, but I would. I, oh, well, then you know, take take that version of Kane and put him in his Scarlet Spider suit or something. You know what I mean? Like, I think there w- was it would have been a better representation of what the character represented in the comics and what they did here.
0: I'm so fifty fifty, and we talked about this. I think it was one of your news stories a couple episodes back when. Andy Sandberg was revealed to be the voice actor. I'm so 50 50 on him, but uh, God, he nailed it here. Even if you like disagree with the interpretation, he absolutely, whatever the assignment he was given, he chewed that crap up. Like he was, oh, no I totally perfect. agree. Oh my God. Like when he was like standing there in like the catcher's squat on top of the roof, like, oh, yeah, it was great. Um, but I could, I, okay, you, you, Congratulations, you surprised me because I thought we were going in a very different direction. Um <laughs> But yeah, I would love anytime that I get Kane content. I'm sorry, just Kane is like Frankenstein's monster is just much more fascinating to me than Ben Riley is Peter's clone with blonde highlights. Never saw it for Ben. Never saw it for him, and I never will. Um but Kane you give me Kane in the film, just shut up and take my money.
1: <laughs> All right, so my second nitpick, and this really is a nitpick. Um, I didn't a hundred, I didn't a hundred percent like that. The climax of the movie, the main fight in the movie was the spiders versus miles. Um, because I think it really distracted from the, okay. So when we get to the cliffhanger part, the cliffhanger is that miles is stuck in the wrong universe and the spot is going to go and kill his, his father, Right. Uh, He's going to go and kill everybody that he loves. And so what we get is we get Miles stuck in this other universe. We get a very, very brief shot of the spot reappearing in Miles' universe. And then, you know, we get the shot of like the new crew that's going to come and try to help Miles. And and that's great. But I think almost the confrontation that the spiders have with, with the spot at the end of the second act... Would have been almost more fun to have at the end of the third act because it leaves the audience with a much more urgent threat from Spot towards Miles's family. So you could have almost pasted like, um, you have the big confrontation with with all the spiders, right? Uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the second act, and then Miles is going after Spot instead of trying to go home and and like protect his dad he's going to go directly after spot and try to prevent him from getting all these you know going in the collider and getting this extra power right and then you have your climax there where you have that big fight and then the spot basically shunts miles aside and goes and says now i'm going to kill your dad and you leave the audience with a much clearer cliffhanger a much more urgent I think cliffhanger of the spot is going to, you know, go and and, and hurt Miles's family. I think that almost was by that point an afterthought. You know, it's like something bad is going to happen to Miles's dad. Um but it was not so much it's a it's the, the threat is the spot, you know. So I almost felt like the way they did the climax diminished the threat of the spot just a little bit by making it feel less urgent. It felt very abstract. Um, when Miles was fighting all the spiders, he's like, I have to go and save my dad. Well, I know you have to go and save your dad from the spot, but we've kind of like shunted the notion of the spot aside a little bit at this point for this ginormous, you know, showdown with with Miguel, who's not the villain of the story, but he's an, an antagonist, but the villain is the spot. So for me, it, I wished we would have had something that gave it a little more urgency uh, towards the spot as a threat at the end. And again, that's a nitpick. It works the way it was done too, but I would have liked a little more sense of urgency when it comes to the spot at the end of the movie. I
0: don't, I don't disagree. I think we could have easily amended that with like a post-credit scene, which surprisingly this movie did not have. I think a post-credit scene of like him, like on his way to go kill his father or him doing something. I think that could have taken care of that. Um, I am a massive fan of taking a D list villain and making them a terrifying adversary. Like I may be mistaken in this and and spider historians help me. I think he just showed up as like maybe not a one off, but maybe a two or three off villain in like the B book, like spectacular Spider-Man, the backup title. And like taking like this laughable villain, which Spider-Man has no shortage of. Um, no, you know, all apologies to the kangaroo and to grizzly, and you know, Nick Spencer tried his darndest with some of those, but um, yeah. So taking the character like the spot and making him like this big bad, and that act two scene was legitimately terrifying. Um, and they were again predictably creative with the animation and, and everything. So yeah, I I see where you're going, I think uh, at least uh, an end credit scene could have could have kind of whetted our appetites to revisit that character in the third film,
1: all right, ah, this is going shockingly smooth between us. Let's see how this last nitpick goes <laughs> um so th- much has been debated uh online uh about whether some of these characters would go along with Miguel as far as like telling people that they need to let their loved ones die right um. And I kind of, I'm kind of, i kind of conflicted on, on that particular issue because we're looking at the full breadth of the entire multiverse, right? And you have, in some of these shots, it looks like hundreds, if not thousands, of different spider people. It is sometimes difficult to imagine that there is not a one in that crew that would not stand up and question the notion of letting people's loved ones die even for the greater good, you know, like there's always been something uh, about Spider-Man as a as a character that is the person that won't lay down, the person that will not quit, the person that keeps on pushing. I mean, you know, looking at something like, you know, nothing can stop the Juggernaut, for example, right? That, that oh the god, theater.
0: oh that's a deep cut. I love you for that.
1: Love <laughs> Um, so there, I think. The never quit, never say die is so baked into the character to then have literally, let's say, a thousand variations of that character and not a single one stands up and says, you know, this is kind of questionable. Feels weird. We don't know how long the structure of of Miguel in charge of all these spider people has gone on. We don't know how he... We don't know how long, how how he selected the people that are there. Maybe he wasn't incre- incredibly selective with who he included, um, specifically avoiding people that he think would try to stand against him. I don't know. But there is something that f- rings overly simplistic almost to say that there is no discontent in the ranks, even having a scene where he tries to recruit somebody, uh, a spider person from another universe. And that person says, you you want me to go and and let people die? I'm not going to do that. Or something would have maybe taken the edge off that a little bit. It just feels, it's difficult for me to believe that in thousands of Spider-Man variations that Miles is the only one that would stand up and say, no, I'm not okay with somebody that I love dying. You know, Um, it's very Star Trek II, Star Trek III. You know, uh, the, the whole, like, um, the, the needs of the many versus the needs of the one. And Star Trek ultimately comes down on on in favor of the needs of the one that you can't, you know, you can't play the numbers game and, and just sacrifice one person to save many others, you know. And I think Spider-Man is very much a character in that mold. So unless there is um, additional complexities or layers that are revealed in the next movie, it doesn't ring quite true this 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 concept of thousands of of spider people all trying to stop miles because they all want him to let his 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 father die it doesn't it doesn't ring quite true if that makes sense
0: i i, I get that okay so this is the one i might i might buckle up with you the most um because and and maybe i'm willing to excuse it however for that meta contextual commentary that we You know we talked about earlier. However, I feel I feel kind of shortchanged. Number one, by interpretations of Spider-Man, both live action and animated, that kind of diminish or don't feature his scientific intellect and his like genius. And even comics, even comics, recent comics have done this. We're we're forgetting that you know Peter Parker's a pretty smart guy um you know i'm not interested in having a pantheon debate of marvel universe geniuses whatever i do know that peter parker regularly outwitted and outsmarted his adversaries you know when he's his back is up against the wall you mentioned the juggernaut story um so you put a caveat in that. And also, I'm I'm also kind of willing to give them a little bit of an extra runway, an extended runway to land this plane because we don't know what's going to happen in the next film. And I kind of just my gut intuition, something else is going to be kind of revealed in this next film because I, I refuse to believe that Miles is the first voice of dissent here.
1: So yeah, I we'll would not be surprised if we to get game some game kind game. of flashbacks or something that there were others. I really, okay, so not not speculation so much as preference. It would be really fun if the one Spider-Man that they show in a flashback that sort of turned Miguel down and actually wanted to actively oppose him is the Spider-Man from the '90s series, who is like had his own multiverse event and actually. Fought the spot right, and so have, having him pop up as somebody who was standing against Miguel would be really interesting. There is there is a Spider Man who was like you know so moral that in most episodes he didn't even throw a punch <laughs> because he wasn't allowed to. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I think showing in flashbacks some Spider people literally turning him down would make a big difference. I think for this for for that particular issue. I mean, listen,
0: any any of any chance that I get for christopher daniel barnes to return to the role that was my first introduction to spider-man period um i'm here for it
1: no no black suited spider-man yells for shock or better (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right chris so if if you had to give this one a grade what would you give it
0: i got like I said, even with these nitpicks, it's like there are so many other qualities that more than make up for our nitpicks. In my opinion, at least, I'm still giving this an A plus.
1: I, I totally give it an A as well. I think this is just a fantastic movie from top to from top to bottom. Um, if this is the kind of stuff we get when we when we let Sony make really bad live action Spider Man movies, then uh, let let it keep going. It's, because... it's like
0: it's almost like yes, it's almost like um, in in Eternals. Uh, I don't know if you ever read. Uh, the most recent Eternals by Kieran Gillen is like they, spoiler, it was revealed that the Eternals, you know, they can't die, they resurrect, but when they resurrect, a human somewhere on Earth dies. So if that sacrifice, that burnt offering, if you will, is Morbius or Venom or Craven the Hunter. Without the the lion eyes near his nipples or whatever, or, or if we have like the environmentalist animal rights activist craven that we appear to be getting, then so be it. Um, I I saw one dumb 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 headline the other day that sony is doing marvel better than i was like whoa 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 (laughs) okay this is like this is like michael this is like michael jordan being on a team with a bunch of scrubs okay this is okay just because the one franchise is great does not diminish the turdiness of the others
1: Although I will say, I hope that this opens the eyes uh, for big screen adaptations in animated style for for uh, superheroes to people, because seeing um, this kind of love and care put into an animated Superman movie, for example, would be would be next level for a Superman fan like me.
0: Absolutely. All right. So, what are your reactions? Your thoughts? What did we get right? What did we forget about? There's only so much we can cover in an hour long review hit us up on social media at nerdbyword on twitter and instagram individually that nerd dave and that nerd chris and we were when we return from our final break we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations all right we are back for our final segment where we recommend good stuff that we've been enjoying to you we call it our own All right, Dave, you're nothing if not consistent.
1: Uh, I'm consistent in my inconsistency. <laughs> so um, I, I, I do love to talk about weird little things. And uh, as I've returned frequently to uh, the Steam Deck and my nerd commendations and the kind of things I'm doing with it uh, as I learn the machine more and more, there is something that I wholeheartedly, uh, you know, in, with my entire being one to nerd commend, and that is a little program that you can install on your Steam Deck called Greenlight. Um, so uh, as Chris and I have discussed previously, I'm, I'm a toddler dad right now. Uh, my toddler really doesn't watch TV. He's kind of a, a difficult little guy. And so finding time for me to sit down and literally sit in front of the TV and play my Xbox uh, One is absolutely impossible. Um, however, the Steam Deck has sort of brought gaming back to my, my world a little bit. Um, I've been, for the most part, playing, you know, native Steam games, PC games on it uh, until I came across Greenlight. Now, Greenlight is not some kind of official um, piece of software. It's uh, sort of, uh, you know, developed by some fans. It's an open source client for xCloud and Xbox home streaming. So what this means is that you can install this uh, Greenlight program on your Steam Deck, and then uh, you can connect your Steam Deck to your Xbox and you can play uh, your Xbox games. They actually are playing on your Xbox, but the uh, image is streamed to your Steam Deck and you're basically using your Steam Deck to play your Xbox games. And I'm going to tell you, man, this is so perfect and so near flawless. It's incredible that this is actually still a beta release. Um, It's completely opened up uh xbox gaming to me again i actually let my um xbox game pass subscription lapse because i just never had the time to play any xbox games and now i'm back in game pass I'm, I'm downloading and installing games on my xbox so i can play them via the steam deck because it's so easy for me you know to to whip out the steam deck to connect to my xbox the whole process takes maybe 30 seconds from the moment i push the on button on my steam deck and i'm in you know and I'm i'm playing games from my xbox um and it was really cool because you're running the game externally on your xbox and it's just streaming to your steam deck it absolutely is incredible for the battery life of the steam deck Um, i can play a fairly high-end steam game on there and get about two two and a half hours of battery life and you can easily double that at minimum when you're doing game streaming like that because all of the heavy lifting is actually being done by the console so uh it's flawless, man. I've, I've very, very rarely had any issues with it. Uh, at one time, I just had to restart the green Greenlight uh, program to get things rolling again. But other than that, like the the, the quality is incredible. I perceive very little lag, uh, even for giggles, although you know that I'm not exactly happy with it. I went on Overwatch 2, and I played around on it just to see how it would handle um, streaming uh, You know, a game that is actually an online competitive game. Uh, and if I can play online competitive games like this as well, and it's flawless, man, like input lag, I, I detect none with my layman's eyes. So th- this is, for me, the definite way of, of doing game streaming from an Xbox to a Steam Deck. Holy crap, man, I got like 500 games on my Xbox and I can actually play them again. It's absolutely incredible, uh, the kind of stuff that you can get on your Steam Deck, man.
0: And And especially with the advent of everything that xbox revealed here recently which i i neglected to make my news story uh the, the upcoming fable game looks amazing starfield looks great um the fps brats can go fall in a ditch somewhere i don't care about you um but everything that's coming out for xbox and game pass in particular no additional cost like i mean like we're, we're getting spoiled here man so it, it's it's funny to like listen to your journey because it takes me back to when, you know, my kids were younger and like, I remember, you know, being so strategic about uh, my daughter's nap time. So I could go play Mario Kart Wii um, and and just kind of planning around that. Um, But, but I'm, I'm just glad that you found a path that works for you,
1: man. Alright, so what have you uh what do you have for us this week for nerd commendations?
0: Alright, so I'm taking a page out of your book. You have revisited things as a nerd commendation. I'm gonna do the same because Midnight Suns was one of the best games, not just in this past year that I've played, but but in recent memory. Um it takes characters that I love, and it really is truly ambitious and imaginative when it comes to gameplay. And like the idea of like this tactical turn-based rpg with like a card system there's no other game like this when it in terms of combat um and so they recently released uh well they're continuing to release um dlc for this and you know sometimes when it comes to dlc it's just like like a singular stopgap and here's you do this and you do that. But the DLC for Midnight Suns has been like this cohesive release. And it's really fascinating to see. I haven't, I don't remember seeing something like this, but there's like a continuing through line of Dracula and vampires and every DLC playable character is tied into that storyline. So I'm getting to play with Deadpool who who I famously, are very agnostic and ambivalent about. Uh, but the writing is really sharp and the voice acting is really good, surprisingly. So so, so, Deadpool is a pleasant surprise. You have the same old shenanigans that I kind of roll my eyes at. But um, then you transition and you get to play with Venom as a playable character. Um, uh, then you get Morbius. Um, and then, you know, the piece to resistance, you get to play as Storm. You know, and so this is all part of this. It's almost like a, an additional game, with with as as jam packed as the storyline and the voice acting and and the writing is. Um, not to mention the gameplay and the cutscenes, like everything is just this whole cohesive unit with this DLC. That it truly feels like an additional game, um, and I'm very glad that I ponied up and paid for the complete edition. That all this stuff came with it and you know, that was included um which I don't normally do but you know like marvel characters you know that's that's my kryptonite if you will um and so this is i mean it's a toss up for me not to put the cart before the horse not to spoil a future episode but when it comes to game of the year marvel snap and and midnight suns like it's it's honestly a toss up between the two of them for game of the year for me like this is this is not only the game of the year for me maybe god Marvel Snap 2 it's ah, I'm so torn they really have like they have changed a whole lot when it comes to gaming for me and I could not be happier with my purchase so Midnight Suns play this game go get this game get the get the complete edition whatever if you're a big fan of costumes there's no shortage of outfits um the character customization is great again um, and then this DLC is, it really packs
1: a bunch. Well, very clearly, I'm going to have to give this a shot. Um, you know, now that I actually can do some gaming again, because you speak of it so glowingly, um, and I trust your judgment when it comes to this kind of thing. So I'm going to definitely check this one out, man.
0: All right. That wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Wedry. Thank you so much for riding along with us. Um, if you would so be so kind as to go to your favorite podcasting platform, like rate review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts Spotify uh, or nerdbyword.com
1: and you can find us on social media and discuss with us your feelings about the various things we nerd commend or the nerd news stories we have uh, presented to you this week or even into the spider-verse and how you felt about the movie Um, so find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword or individually at that Dave and at that Chris
0: and as always stay well and stay nerdy
1: the nerd byword is written and produced by chris and dave two nerds with a love of all things pop culture the podcast features music by al gimenez with additional drops composed by joe beyondy our show art is by Ashery design find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available